Hey, it's Otis here. Before we get to the bedtime reading, I wanted to let you know that I just launched a brand new show. It's called The Daily Book Club, a daytime companion to Sleepy, where you hear entire books one chapter at a time, one day at a time. Simple as that. So if Sleepy is how you uh, wind down your day, The Daily Book Club is a great way to start your day. There's new episodes daily. Uh, I read in a slightly peppier voice so that you can get really lost in these amazing stories that have stood the test of time. Or, just like Sleepy, you can sit back and relax and zone out to a good book. The first book we'll be reading is The Enchanted April by Elizabeth Von Arnhem. Story is, in the 1920s, four women unfulfilled with life take a chance and abscond to a dreamy medieval Italian castle. It's a story dripping with wisteria, the beauty of solitude, and an unlikely pursuit of joy in Portofino, Italy. I think that this is a perfect story for the season, and you can hear it now. Find The Daily Book Club on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere else. This show has been a long time coming, and I'm so excited to bring you even more stories. So go subscribe to The Daily Book Club to hear what happens next. Thanks. This episode of Sleepy is proudly sponsored by ButcherBox. If you've listened to Sleepy for a while, you know that I love good food, eating well, and treating my body right so that I can take on my days. Well, ButcherBox helps you do exactly that. They deliver super high-quality, 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, crate-free pork, and wild-caught seafood right to your door. It's humanely raised, no antibiotics or added hormones, they have a huge variety to choose from. They are excellent deals. They've got recipes and guides and tips included. And there's free shipping, always. Eating well is a huge factor in getting a good night's sleep, as is sometimes saving the trip to the grocery store and taking some stress out of your daily schedule. I have been loving these deliveries for those reasons. Been cooking up their uh, steak tips with eggs in the morning with butter and scallions and soy sauce. And I also made a delicious brine chicken roast with lemon parsley gravy. So good. The prices for this kind of quality and convenience is really impressive. Uh, yeah, ButcherBox has made me very happy. So sign up at butcherbox.com sleepy and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com sleepy and use code sleepy to choose your free for a year offer. Plus get $20 off your first order. Butcherbox.com sleepy. Eat well, sleep well. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, my name's Otis Gray, and you're listening to Sleepy. A podcast where I read old books to help you get to sleep, and a proud member of the Airwave Podcast Network. 
I have got a wonderful snoozy bedtime story for you tonight. But before we get to tonight's reading, I just want to thank all of our patrons on Patreon.com. Vanya Slater, Jason Price, and Laura Stella. Thank you all so, so much for being a part of making this show. It really means a lot. And for anyone who doesn't know, all these names that I just read are brand new patrons on Patreon.com, which is a wonderful site where you can go and support creators of the work that you like. So, if the Sleepy Podcast has helped you get a better night's rest and um, you want to be a part of making this show, then go to Patreon.com slash Sleepy Radio and donate even a dollar a month. At $5 a month, you get access to over 50 extra poetry readings that are not on the regular podcast feed. And um, you get entered into book raffles where I give away the physical copies of the books I read on the show. Uh, But no matter how much you donate, even a dollar, I will read your name in the opening credits of the next show after you do. So, if you want to officially be a part of making this bedtime podcast, go to patreon.com slash sleepy radio. Thank you. And as always, the music you're hearing is by my good friend James Lepkowski, and the cover art for Sleepy is by Gracie Kanan. Well, tonight... I have um, an extraordinarily important and extraordinarily boring reading for you. It is On the Origin of Species by none other than Charles Darwin. Darwin, uh, the name probably rings a bell for you. He's kind of a big deal. Evolution was a pretty um, hot take at the time, but... um, This book that I'm reading tonight, this really changed the course of human history quite a bit. And uh, while it is fascinating to look back on reading this, it is extraordinarily uh, granular and dull in its uh, actual reading, which for our purposes is absolutely perfect just felt it'd be a good time to read this as um, I've been getting to spend a little bit more time in nature and feeling very uh, adventurous and outdoorsy lately, paying attention to the birds a little bit more every day. Um, So I figured some Darwin would be really good to read right now. So without further ado, on the origin of species by Charles Darwin. And now is the time for you to fluff up your pillow just how you like it. Feel yourself melt into your bed. Get real comfortable. Close your eyes and let me read to you.
Chapter 1 Variation Under Domestication Causes of Variability When we compare the individuals of the same variety or subvariety of our older cultivated plants and animals, one of the first points which strikes us is that they generally differ more from each other than do the individuals of any one species of a variety in a state of nature. And if we reflect on the vast diversity of the plants and animals which have been cultivated, and which have varied during all ages under the most different climates and treatment, we are driven to conclude that this great variability is due to our domestic productions having been raised under conditions of life not so uniform as, and somewhat different from, those to which the parent species had been exposed under nature. There is also some probability in the view propounded by Andrew Knight that this variability may be partly connected with excess of food. It seems clear that organic beings must be exposed during several generations to new conditions to cause any great amount of variation. And that, when the organization has once begun to vary, it generally continues varying for many generations. No case is on record of a variable organism ceasing to vary under cultivation. Our oldest cultivated plants, such as wheat, still yield new varieties. Our oldest domesticated animals are still capable of rapid improvement or modification. As far as I am able to judge, after long attending to the subject, the conditions of life appear to act in two ways. Directly on the whole organization or on certain parts alone and indirectly by affecting the reproductive system. With respect to the direct action, we must bear in mind that in every case, as Professor Weissman has lately insisted, and as I have incidentally shown in my work on variation under domestication, there are two factors. Namely, the nature of the organism and the nature of the conditions. The former seems to be much more the important, for nearly similar variations sometimes arise under, as far as we can judge, dissimilar conditions. And on the other hand, dissimilar variations arise under conditions which appear to be nearly uniform. The effects on offspring are either definite or indefinite. They may be considered as definite when all or nearly all the offspring of individuals exposed to certain conditions during several generations are modified in the same manner. It is extremely difficult to come to any conclusion in regard to the extent of the changes which have been thus definitely induced. There can, however, be little doubt about many slight changes, 
such as size from the amount of food, color from the nature of the food, thickness of the skin and hair from climate, etc. Each of the endless variations which we see in the plumage of our fowls must have had some efficient cause. And if the same cause were to act uniformly during a long series of generations on many individuals, all probably would be modified in the same manner. Such facts as the complex and extraordinary outgrowths which variably follow from the insertion of a minute drop of poison by a gall-producing insect shows us what singular modifications might result in the case of plants from a chemical change in the nature of the sap. Indefinite variability is a much more common result of change conditions than definite variability and has probably played a more important part in the formation of our domestic races. We see indefinite variability in the endless slight peculiarities which distinguish the individuals of the same species and which cannot be accounted for by inheritance from either parent or from some more remote ancestor. Even strongly marked differences occasionally appear in the young of the same litter and in seedlings from the same seed capsule. At long intervals of time, out of millions of individuals reared in the same country and fed on nearly the same food, deviations of structure so strongly pronounced as to deserve to be called monstrosities arise. But monstrosities cannot be separated by any distinct line from slighter variations. All such changes of structure, whether extremely slight or strongly marked, which appear among many individuals living together, may be considered as the indefinite effects of the conditions of life on each individual organism, in nearly the same manner as the chill affects different men in an indefinite manner, according to their state of body or constitution, causing coughs or colds, rheumatism, or inflammation of various organs. With respect to what I have called the indirect action of change conditions, namely, through the reproductive system of being affected, we may infer that variability is thus induced, partly from the fact of this system being extremely sensitive to any change in the conditions, and partly from the similarity, as Kohlruder and others have remarked, between the variability which follows from the crossing of distinct species and that which may be observed with plants and animals when reared under new or unnatural conditions. Many facts clearly show how eminently susceptible the reproductive system is to very slight changes in the surrounding conditions. Nothing is more easy than to tame an animal and few things more difficult than to get it to breed freely under confinement, even when the male and female unite. How many animals there are which will not breed, 
though kept in an almost free state in their native country. This is generally, but erroneously attributed to vitiated instincts. Many cultivated plants display the utmost vigor, and yet rarely or never seed. In some few cases, it has been discovered that a very trifling change, such as a little more or less water at some particular period of growth, will determine whether or not a plant will produce seeds. I cannot here give the details which I have collected and elsewhere published on this curious subject, but to show how singular the laws are which determine the reproduction of animals under confinement, I may mention that carnivorous animals, even from the tropics, breed in this country pretty freely under confinement, with the exception of plantigrades or bear family, which seldom produce young. Whereas carnivorous birds, with the rarest exception, hardly ever lay fertile eggs. Many exotic plants have pollen utterly worthless, in the same condition as in the most sterile hybrids. When, on the one hand, we see domesticated animals and plants, though often weak and sickly, breeding freely under confinement, and when on the other hand we see individuals, though taken young from a state of nature perfectly tamed, long-lived and healthy, of which I could give numerous instances, yet having their reproductive system so seriously affected by unperceived causes as to fail to act. We need not be surprised at this system when it does act under confinement, acting irregularly and producing offspring somewhat unlike their parents. I may add that, as some organisms breed freely under the most unnatural conditions, for instance, rabbits and ferrets kept in hutches, showing that their reproductive organs are not easily affected. So will some animals and plants withstand domestication or cultivation and very, very slightly, perhaps hardly more than in a state of nature. Some naturalists have maintained that all variations are connected with the act of sexual reproduction, but this is certainly an error, for I have given in another work a long list of sporting plants, as they are called by gardeners that is, of plants which have suddenly produced a single bud with a new and sometimes widely different character from that of the other buds on the same plant. These bud variations, as they may be named, can be propagated by grafts, offsets, etc., and sometimes by seed. They occur rarely under nature, but are far from rare under culture. As a single bud out of many thousands produced year after year on the same tree under uniform conditions has been known suddenly to assume a new character, and as buds on distinct trees growing under different conditions have sometimes yielded nearly the same variety. For instance, 
buds on peach trees producing nectarines, and buds on common roses producing moss roses. We clearly see that the nature of the conditions is of subordinate importance in comparison with the nature of the organism in determining each particular form of variation. perhaps of not more importance than the nature of the spark by which a mass of combustible matter is ignited as in determining the nature of the flames. Effects of habit and of the use or disuse of parts, correlated variation, inheritance. Changed habits produce an inherited effect as in the period of the following of plants when transported from one climate to another. With animals, the increased use or disuse of parts has had a more marked influence. Thus I find in the domestic duck that the bones of the wing weigh less and the bones of the leg more in proportion to the whole skeleton than do the same bones in the wild duck and this change may be safely attributed to the domestic duck flying much less and walking more than its wild parents. The great and inherited development of the udders in cows and goats in countries where they are habitually milked in comparison with these organs in other countries is probably another instance of the effects of use. Not one of our domestic animals can be named which is not in some country drooping ears, and the view which has been suggested that the drooping is due to disuse of the muscles of the ears from the animals being seldom much alarmed seems probable. Many laws regulate variation, some few of which can be dimly seen and will hereafter be briefly discussed. I will here only allude to what may be called correlated variation. Important changes in the embryo or larva will probably entail changes in the mature animal. In monstrosities, the correlations between quite distinct parts are very curious, and many instances are given in Isidore Jeffrey St. Hilaire's great work on the subject. Breeders believe that long limbs are almost always accompanied by an elongated head. Some instances of correlation are quite whimsical. Thus cats which are entirely white and have blue eyes are generally deaf. But it has been lately stated by Mr. Tay that this is confined to the males. Color and constitutional peculiarities go together, of which may be remarkable cases could be given among animals and plants. From facts collected by Husinger, it appears that white sheep and pigs are injured by certain plants, while dark-colored individuals escape. Professor Wyman has recently communicated to me a good illustration of this fact on asking some farmers in Virginia how it was that all their pigs were black. They informed him that the pigs ate the paint root, 
Lachnanthes, which colored their bones pink and which caused the hooves of all but the black varieties to drop off. And one of the crackers added, we select the black members of the litter for raising as they alone have a good chance of living. Hairless dogs have imperfect teeth. Long-haired and coarse-haired animals are apt to have, as is asserted, long or many horns. Pigeons with feathered feet have skin between their outer toes. Pigeons with short beaks have small feet, and those with long beaks, large feet. Hence, if man goes on selecting and thus augmenting any peculiarity, he will almost certainly modify unintentionally other parts of the structure, owing to the mysterious laws of correlation. The results of the various, unknown, or but dimly understood laws of variation are infinitely complex and diversified. It is well worthwhile carefully to study the several treatises on some of our old cultivated plants, as on the hyacinth, potato, even the dahlia, etc. And it is really surprising to know the endless points of structure and constitution in which the varieties and subvarieties differ slightly from each other. The whole organization seems to have some plastic and departs in a slight degree from that of the parental type. Any variation which is not inherited is unimportant for us, but the number and diversity of inheritable deviations of structure, both those of slight and those of considerable physiological importance, are endless. Dr. Prosper Lucas's treatise, in two large volumes, is the fullest and the best on this subject. No breeder doubts how strong is the tendency to inheritance. That like produces like, is his fundamental belief. Doubts have been thrown on this principle only by theoretical writers. When any deviation of structure often appears and we see it in the father and child. We cannot tell whether it may be due to the same cause having acted on both. But when among individuals, apparently exposed to the same conditions, any very rare deviation due to some extraordinary combination of circumstances appears in the parent. Say, once among several million individuals, and it reappears in the child, the mere doctrine of chances almost compels us to attribute its reappearance to inheritance. Everyone must have heard of cases of albinism, prickly skin, hairy bodies, etc., appearing in several members of the same family. If strange and rare deviations of structure are truly inherited, less strange and commoner deviations may be freely admitted to be inheritable. Perhaps the correct way of viewing the whole subject would be to look at the inheritance of every character or whatever as the rule and not inheritance as the anomaly.
the laws governing inheritance are for the most part unknown. No one can say why the same peculiarity in different individuals of the same species or in different species is sometimes inherited and sometimes not so. Why the child often reverts in certain characteristics to its grandfather or grandmother or more remote ancestor. Why a peculiarity is often transmitted from one sex to both sexes or to one sex alone more commonly, but not exclusively, to the like sex. It is a fact of some importance to us that peculiarities appearing in the males of our domestic breeds are often transmitted, either exclusively or in a much greater degree, to the males alone. A much more important rule, which I think may be trusted, is that at whatever period of life a peculiarity first appears, it tends to reappear in the offspring at a corresponding age, though sometimes earlier. In many cases, this could not be otherwise. Thus, the inherited peculiarities in the horns of cattle could appear only in the offspring when nearly mature. Peculiarities in the silkworm are known to appear at the corresponding caterpillar or cocoon stage. But hereditary diseases and some other facts make me believe that the rule has a wider extension and that when there is no apparent reason why a peculiarity should appear at any particular age, yet that it does not tend to appear in the offspring at the same period at which it first appeared in the parent. I believe this rule to be of the highest importance in explaining the laws of embryology. These remarks are of course confined to the first appearance of the peculiarity and not to the primary cause which may have acted on the ovules or on the male element. In nearly the same manner as the increased length of the horns in the offspring from a short-horned cow by a long-horned bull, though appearing late in life, is clearly due to the male element. Having alluded to the subject of reversion, I may here refer to a statement often made by naturalists, namely that our domestic varieties, when run wild, gradually but invariably revert in character to their aboriginal stocks. Hence it has been argued that no deductions can be drawn from domestic races to species in a state of nature. I have in vain endeavored to discover on what decisive facts the above statement has so often and so boldly been made. There would be great difficulty in proving its truth. We may safely conclude that very many of the most strongly marked domestic varieties could not possibly live in a wild state. In many cases, we do not know what the aboriginal stock was, and so could not tell whether or not nearly perfect reversion has ensued. It would be necessary, 
in order to prevent the effects of intercrossing that only a single variety should be turned loose in its new home. Nevertheless, as our varieties certainly do occasionally revert in some of their characters to ancestral forms, it seems to me not improbable that if we could succeed in naturalizing or were to cultivate during many generations, the several races, for instance, of the cabbage in very poor soil, in which case, however, some effect would have to be attributed to the definite action of the poor soil, that they would, to a large extent or even wholly, revert to the wild aboriginal stock. Whether or not the experiment would succeed is not of great importance for our line of argument, for by the experiment itself the conditions of life are changed. If it could be shown that our domestic varieties manifested a strong tendency to reversion, that is, to lose their acquired characters while kept under the same conditions and while kept in a considerable body so that free intercrossing might check by blending together any slight deviations in their structure. In such case, I grant that we could deduce nothing from domestic varieties in regard to species. But there is not a shadow of evidence in favor of this view to assert that we cannot breed our cart and race horses, long and shorthorn cattle, and poultry of various breeds and esculent vegetables for an unlimited number of generations would be opposed to all experience. Character of domestic varieties Difficulty of distinguishing between varieties and species Origin of domestic varieties from one or more species When we look to the hereditary varieties or races of our domestic animals and plants and compare them with closely allied species, we generally perceive in each domestic race, as already remarked, less uniformity of character than in true species. Domestic races often have a somewhat monstrous character, by which I mean that Although differing from each other and from other species of the same genus, in several trifling respects, they often differ in an extreme degree in some one part, both when compared one with another, and more especially when compared with the species under nature to which they are nearest allied. With these exceptions, and with that of perfect fertility of varieties when crossed, a subject hereafter to be discussed. Domestic races of the same species differ from each other in the same manner as they do the closely allied species of the same genus in a state of nature. But the differences in most cases are less in degree. This must be admitted as true for the domestic races of many animals and plants have been ranked by some competent judges as the descendants of the aboriginally distinct species 
and by other Compton judges as mere varieties. If any well-marked distinction existed between a domestic race and a species, this source of doubt would not so perpetually recur. It has often been stated that domestic races do not differ from each other in characters of generic value. It can be shown that this statement is not correct, but naturalists differ much in determining what characters are of generic value. All such valuations being at present empirical. When it is explained how genera originate under nature, it will be seen that we have no right to expect often to find a generic amount of difference in our domesticated races. In attempting to estimate the amount of structural difference between allied domestic races, we are soon involved in doubt from not knowing whether they are descended from one or several parent species. This point, if it could be cleared up, would be interesting. If, for instance, it could be shown that the greyhound, bloodhound, terrier, spaniel, and bulldog, which we all know propagate their kind truly, were the offspring of any single species, then such facts would have a great weight in making us doubt about the immutability of many closely allied natural species. For instance, of the many foxes inhabiting the different quarters of the world. I do not believe, as we shall presently see, that the whole amount of difference between the several breeds of the dog has been produced under domestication. I believe that a small part of the difference is due to their being descended from distinct species. In the case of strongly marked races or some other domesticated species, there is presumptive or even strong evidence that all are descended from a single wild stock. It has often been assumed that man has chosen for domestication animals and plants having an extraordinary inherent tendency to vary, and likewise to withstand diverse climates. I do not dispute that these capacities have added largely to the value of most of our domesticated productions, but how could a layman possibly know, when he first tamed an animal, whether it would vary in succeeding generations? and whether it would endure other climates. As the little variability of the ass and goose, or the small power of endurance of warmth by the reindeer, or the cold by the common camel, prevented their domestication. I cannot doubt that if other animals and plants, equal in number to our domesticated productions, and belonging to equally diverse classes and countries, were taken from a state of nature, and could be made to breed for an equal number of generations under domestication, they would on average vary as largely as the parent species of our existing domesticated productions have varied. 
in the case of most of our anciently domesticated animals and plants, it is not possible to come to any definite conclusion whether they are descended from one or several wild species. The argument mainly relied on by those who believe in the multiple origin of our domestic animals is that we find in the most ancient times on the monuments of Egypt and in the lake habitations of Switzerland much diversity in the breeds and that some of these ancient breeds closely resemble or are even identical with those still existing. But this only throws far backward the history of civilization and shows that animals were domesticated at a much earlier period than has hitherto been supposed. The lake inhabitants of Switzerland cultivated several kinds of wheat and barley, the pea, the poppy for oil and flax, and they possessed several domesticated animals. They also carried on commerce with other nations. All this clearly shows, as here has remarked, that they had at this early age progressed considerably in civilization, and this again implies a long-continued previous period of less advanced civilization, during which the domesticated animals kept by different tribes in different districts, might have varied and given rise to distinct races. Since the discovery of flint tools in the superficial formations of many parts of the world, all geologists believe that barbarian men existed at an enormously remote period. And we know that, at present day, there is hardly a tribe so barbarous as not to have domesticated, at least the dog. Thank you for listening to Sleepy. Good night.